Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All of us who sort of grew up a little bit with David Bowie in the early 70s saw him changing, what, monthly. And then he sort of faded away from public view in the 90s. And then, you know, Amon comes into his life. And then there's this other David Bowie that sort of blossoms in the 2000s right up to the end of his life. It's extraordinary. I love the fact that the novel came out on Valentine's Day because in a sense, it's a love song to Bowie, a very conflicted Bowie, but also it's a love song to the idea of not knowing and that the more we really study something, the less we tend to know about it. Definitely that's true of Bowie. My favorite albums are the, are the Berlin Trilogy albums. As far as influence goes, you probably can't get any higher than the Berlin Trilogy when it comes to Bowie. Wow. Because... The things he was doing we take for granted now, almost no other artists were doing them, and certainly no one of his stature. We've been talking very positively about Bowie so far, but that's not the only side of him you write about in the novel. Warning, this sort of content is questionable. I got no problem breaking the rules. This is a rock and roll show. Rock is Lit! Welcome to Season 2 of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by Pantheon Podcast Network. Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes featuring some amazing rock novelists and music experts. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and pop on over to Good Pods or Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and rating. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. Hello, Lit listeners. If you're a fan of David Bowie, be it Ziggy Stardust, Halloween Jack, The Thin White Duke, Major Tom, Aladdin Sane, or The Blind Prophet from the Black Star videos, or all of the above, you're going to love this episode. Lance Olson is here to talk about his latest novel, Always Crashing in the Same Car, a novel after David Bowie. 
a story that fictionalizes the life of David Bowie from a wide variety of angles. In the last segment of the episode, singer, songwriter, music producer, and host of the Music is Not a Genre podcast, Nick DiMatteo, joins me to talk about David Bowie's Berlin years, a period that figures into Lance's novel. But first, I'd like to welcome Lance Olson to Rock is Lit. Lance is the author of more than 30 works of innovative fiction, including Skin Elegies, My Red Heaven, and Calendar of Regrets, a Guggenheim Berlin Prize, DAAD Artist in Berlin Residency, two-time NEA Fellowship, and Pushcart Prize recipient, as well as a Fulbright Scholar, Lance is Professor of Literature and Creative Writing at the University of Utah. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Lance. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, and thanks so much for having me. Well, as the Brooklyn Rail wrote about you, quote, in the world of contemporary fiction, Lance Olson is a rock star. So you're in the right place here at Rock is Lit. <laughs> oh, well, it's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking with you and talking about David Bowie. Yes, I know you're a fan of David Bowie. Always crashing in the same car isn't the first time you've written about him, though. Bowie also shows up in your book there, but you've written about music in several of your books. For example, the character Ben in your novel, Tonguing the Zeitgeist, Moonlights for a Heavy Metal Band, and the character Mona in your novel, Sewing Shut My Eyes, is a neo-goth lyricist in her boyfriend's band. So I'm guessing you've got pretty eclectic taste in music. Absolutely. And it was back many, many a year. (laughs) (laughs) Let's find out just how eclectic that taste is. Let's play a set of five questions. Okay. What music video made the biggest impression on you? Man, you know, there are so, so many, but since, since we're on sort of a Bowie roll, I'll go with Ashes to Ashes, which came out in 1980. And what, what's really interesting about that for me is that it's sort of a major Tom Redux uh, video, major Tom from Space Odyssey or Oddity, mm-hmm. which is kind of riffing off of Stanley Kubrick's uh, uh, Space Odyssey is in a lot of ways like the central metaphor, the signature metaphor for Bowie. Um, Not so much for what you'd think, which is like, say, freedom and possibility, but rather for, you know, existential estrangement, loneliness, being lost in space, this bottomless drift. And you hear that over and over again, this stuff, you know, Moon Age Daydream, Starman, Life on Mars, yeah. and so on. And so I would, I would go with that. Plus, it's just an awesomely cool video to, to look at. I wish I could show you my notes because I, I, I typed underneath that question, he's going to say ashes to ashes. <laughs> All right. We're sharing the same brain. This is good. <laughs> well, you know, you write about it in the novel. That comes up in the novel. And it's the most expensive video ever made at that time. Right. And I I learned that Bowie actually storyboarded the video himself, planning every shot and dictating the editing process. So he was really involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it looks so good. I mean, you look back at it now and and just it's hard to believe what a cutting edge video it was. Right. Question number two. You're in a bar and you see a rock star sitting in a corner nursing a drink and reading your book. Who is it? And what do you do? <laughs> well, okay. So, so kind of two answers, but the, the first is, uh, of course, Bowie reading my book about Bowie. Like that would be so awesome. Yes. And what I've heard is, is that he was really approachable. You know, he used to go to jazz clubs in New York and just sort of sit in the back dressed in his sort of schlumpy clothes and people come up and talk to him and he would, you know, just strike up conversations. 
So I love the idea of getting together and talking about how, how, how would you say it? How un-Bowie-like my Bowie probably was in his mind. But I was also like <laughs> sitting in a sky bar in LA once. And all of a sudden, it, it was early in the evening. There weren't many people there. And the guys who ran the place came up and sort of sectioned off an area maybe like 10 feet away from me. And all of you too suddenly got came in through a back door and sat Whoa. there. And it was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah. Okay, this is this is like a high point of life. And they were <laughs> exuding, like they paid no attention to anybody else in the bar. They super exuded like don't bother us vibes. Mm. But I just got to like sit there and watch them talk. And I, that was very cool. That was my like close to talking to rock stardom, but feeling very much that they were not approachable. All right. Well, at least you got to observe them in the wild. Yes. They look just like you too. (laughs) (laughs) Fill in the blanks. When I hear blank song, I think of blank. Okay. So U2's Walk On, which came out, I think in like 2000, has played a really pivotal role for me for marking new chapters in my life. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And so whenever something big changes, like I, I quit a professorship up in, at the University of Idaho then and went and lived up in a cabin in the middle of nowhere for about six years. And wow. uh, that was, yeah, and that was what it was playing on the car as I drove away. It was, it was so great. And then I would pair that with Bowie and Where Are We Now, which is one of my other all-time favorite videos. And that came out in 2013. I was in Berlin. A friend sent me the link to it. And you know, nobody knew this was going to come out. And, and Bowie just like uploaded it one night. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, this is so cool. But it's again, one of those, like, I've been marking my life for the last, uh, what, 10 years now with this idea of where are we now? And that was Bowie looking back over, over his life. All right. What's on your playlist now? Besides Bowie. Besides Bowie. You know, there's a lot of different things. So Somebody just introduced me like three weeks ago to Cigarettes After Sex, and I have fallen in love with Cigarettes After Sex, Group Love, Arcade Fire, 
There's this really wonderful Bleachers song where Bruce Springsteen sings in the background. And it's just like so good. China, Chinatown, I think it's called Dresden hmm. Dolls, which a lot of people haven't heard of, but should. Another group, an alt group called Raina Maria, which is fantastic. And then a rapper named Watsky. So that, a little bit of everything. And there's like literally there's a little bit of Bach in there. There's a lot of jazz. Miles Davis, like super, super important to me. So it goes all over the place. Holy cow. That, yeah. I wasn't kidding. Your taste is eclectic. <laughs> That's great, though. And I, had, I have not heard of several of those bands you mentioned, so I'll check them out. That sounds awesome. interesting. Yeah. What's your favorite rock novel? So this goes back to the early 90s. There's a guy who isn't read very much anymore and absolutely should be, Lewis Shiner, and he came out with a novel called Glimpses. And it's the coolest. It actually won the World Fantasy Award in 1993-94. And it's about this guy named Ray, who's an ex-drummer, sort of a garage band kind of guy. And then currently is, is just a guy who makes his money off of fixing musical equipment. And he's working through this failing marriage. He's sitting in his uh, room one night, listening through these new speakers. He got to some some music and all of a sudden songs he's never heard before start playing through his speakers and voices he's never heard before. And long story short, he falls into the world of Jim Morrison, Brian <gasps> Wilson, Jimi Hendrix, and the Beatles. And oh my gosh. it's so good. And I, you know, it's a long novel. It's like 400 pages or something, but you just can't put it down really well written. But also, you know, for anybody who's addicted to rock and roll history, it was so good. So can't, can't recommend it highly enough. What's his name again? So Lewis Shiner. Okay. And the book is called Glimpses. Putting him on the list. That sounds right up my alley. Yeah, definitely. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Lance Olson. Make sure you stick around for the last segment of the episode to hear Nick DiMatteo talk about David Bowie's Berlin years. This is Lance Olson, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. We're back with Lance Olson, author of many, many books, but we're going to focus on this brand spanking new one for this episode, Always Crashing in the Same Car, a novel after David Bowie. First of all, congrats on the book. It's fantastic. Oh, thanks so much. No, I loved it. Partly for the subject matter, partly for the difficult questions it asks, and partly because of the style and how all of that works together to create this remarkable account of David Bowie's life and art. And I want to talk about all of that. But first, in case some listeners aren't familiar with the book, can you give us a little bit more information on the story? It's told from lots of different perspectives through lots of different voices. And uh, so, you know, there's a musicologist who's trying to write a a monograph on David Bowie that's from David Bowie's point of view, kind of the later David Bowie, the last few years of his life when he's both battling liver cancer, though he didn't tell anybody about it, but also, you know, the the consequences of his sixth, yes, sixth heart attack, and also battling with the idea of how 
somebody who's sort of the opposite of young can continue to reinvent themselves. So many rock and rollers sort of fall into patterns and begin to do themselves. And Bowie was always trying to, to get around that, but also friends and lovers on and on. And, and the whole idea, and, you know, this is something that I think we all, all feel, especially when we're getting into biographies, is that there are just lots of Bowies. So that, that idea, lots of everybody. So there's, yeah. there's that idea, you know, of after, a novel after David Bowie, both in the sense of after because he's left the building, but also after because, you know, in search of what David Bowie was like. And he, of all people in the world, was this sort of black box creature. It's just so hard to read who he was. And, you know, all of us who sort of grew up a little bit with David Bowie in the early 70s saw him changing, what, monthly. And then he sort of faded away from public view in the 90s. And then, you know, Amon comes into his life. And then there's this other David Bowie that sort of blossoms in the 2000s right up to the end of his life. It's extraordinary. I read somewhere that you said one of the reasons you wrote the book is because you wanted to understand Bowie better. Where did that need come from? I mean, was his extremely surprising death in 2016 the impetus? Because nobody knew he was sick and it was shocking. Yeah, I, I think, well, he goes back all the way to the time. Yeah, I was probably like 13, 14. And well, I mean, everybody heard, you know, Space Oddity. But then this album, Diamond Dogs, really caught my attention and the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust. And this guy who would like imagine these personae for himself and inhabit those, that intrigued me. And I followed David Bowie probably through the early 80s. My favorite albums are the, are the Berlin Trilogy albums. And then he fell off the, certainly my radar, and then just like blossomed, like I say, in, in the early 2000s. And what fascinated me about him was how this guy who, you know, was one person when I was growing up had become this other person who was working with really interesting musicians. I mentioned earlier about him going into jazz bars, like he would literally go into a jazz bar. And if he heard a group playing that he really loved, he would go up afterwards and go, you want to help me make an album? And then he would do these demos of a song, but then give it to them and go, okay, do whatever you would do to this song and try to learn from these younger musicians. That's fascinating. So I started to think, oh, I really want to know more about him. And I started to read biographies or about six biographies or so out. And every biography had a different David Bowie. It was extraordinary. And like, the, so I wanted to learn more about him. And the more I read, the less I learned about him. Exactly. Yeah. I love the fact that the novel came out on Valentine's Day, because in a sense, it's a love song to Bowie, a very conflicted Bowie, but also it's a love song to the idea of not knowing. And that the more we really study something, the less we tend to know about it. Definitely that's true of Bowie. There's actually a quote in the book about that kind of thing. It said that aficionados are the ones who know the least about a subject, a person, because they think they know everything. That sort of goes back to what you're just saying there. You know, those of us who have specialty fields go into them thinking, oh, we can get a fence around this. And, and then the more you go into it, you, you know, that fence just breaks down all over the place. So that actually is the impetus, that idea of knowing less and less and then thinking, I mean, what a fiction writer can do that other forms of writing can't do or don't know they can do is to, you know, deep dive into consciousness and, and deep dive into language. 
and to try to think, okay, so what is, like, what's going on in Bowie's head is an extraordinary and extraordinarily fun task. So yeah, that's, that's where the impetus started to come from. Let's stick with Bowie, the person before the real person, before we get into the persona and all of that and how persona works in the story. Let's talk about his background a little bit. I was surprised in reading the book to find out how much mental illness is in the Bowie family. Tell me a little bit more about his background. At one point, you know, he was interviewed and and asked about that. And I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second. But he said, you know, I think one of the reasons actually that I create so many personae is for the very reason that if I don't, I may go crazy. He had a brother he was very close to early on who gave him, like introduced him, for instance, to jazz, introduced him to Kerouac. On the road. Yeah, this kind of stuff. But the brother, Terry, was really mentally unstable himself, fell more and more into depression, was diagnosed as schizophrenic and so on, and ended up actually going to a sanatorium for many, many years and ended up killing himself. And then other people in his family, a couple of aunts that he had, for instance, underwent electroshock therapy for something that at the time was essentially called neuroses. Nobody quite knows what that meant. It was just sort of an overall label at the time for somebody who wasn't blending in. But Bowie was very close. And then, and then his parents, his mother was probably not in any way sort of mentally disturbed, except enraged that she could have become a singer. And her husband sort of prevented that, the mores of the time prevented that, and so on. And so she was very unhappy and clearly wasn't happy having had these children. She wanted a different kind of life. And the result was that Bowie just never remembered anything about his childhood with fondness. You know, he, he was that guy. I mean, I grew up in a, in a very sort of bland suburban environment. And, and in many ways, he did too. And his first instinct, like so many of us, is to get out of that environment. But he was, he was running. He was running. The solid book we wrote cannot be found today. And it was stalking time for the moon boys, the Beauty Brothers. With our backs on the arch. And if the devil made me here, but you can't sing about that. A lot of people think that he had two different colored eyes, but that's actually not the case. What, what was the situation with his eyes? It's hard to imagine the Bowie that we all know is getting into fistfights over a girl, but, but indeed he did <laughs> yes. in, in the schoolyard. And this guy who actually turned out to be one of his long lasting friends went to punch him in the eye, but actually caught the pupil of his eye with his thumbnail and damaged it. And the sphincter in your eye is an automatic nervous response. And so, so you don't have any control over it, but it damaged that. And so he was in the hospital for a long time. And then when he came out, that eye stayed dilated. And so what we see is the two colors are actually one eye that's very dilated and one that is normal. And the propensity he had for migraines was awful. I, I don't know if any of your listeners are migraine sufferers, but one of the triggers for migraines is very bright light. So if you can't control 
you know, how much light comes in. Like he was always getting these migraines that were triggered by the bright lights. Oh my so it, it's really interesting. Like if you look back at some of his early stuff, he actually wore kind of a pirate's eye patch for a while. Yes. And then later in his life, just sort of put up with it. That was something I didn't know either. I assumed he had two colors. And it's true for all of us. I think that when we look at photos of Bowie, we like make that another color rather than actually examining the photo we see. No, I always thought they were two different colored eyes. And when I read this in your book, it really resonated with me because when I was five years old, I cut my left cornea with glass. I don't have a problem with the pupil. I mean, with the dilation or anything like that, but I can't really Hmm. see out of that eye. And he never was able to really see clearly out of that eye again after that injury. And so that really resonated with me. That was an interesting bit of trivia there. And, and of course, you know, I hadn't even thought about the guys on stage with all of these spotlights and what that would do to you, not being able to, you know, having your eye dilated all the time. That must have been horrible. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Persona. And you can't think of David Bowie without thinking about Persona. So a lot of the book is about that very thing, the face that we choose to show others, the identities we create. And, you know, the question arises of whether or not we can ever really know someone or even ourselves. One of the ways you emphasize this is that Bowie is typically referred to in the book as, quote, the man or by a pronoun rather than his name, sort of underscoring that that point about Mm -hmm. his unknowability. What's interesting is that this is precisely what you as the author and the narrator of the book or the character Alec felt compelled to do, try to know Bowie. So let's stay with Alec a minute. What's going on in his life that causes him to pursue researching and writing a book about Bowie? So Alec is is a deeply ironized version of an academic in many ways. He also had fallen into, into the Bowie and was researching him to write a book. He went to Berlin, you know, in part because of Bowie's Berlin years, in part, though, to get away from a trauma that he had suffered. His wife died a, a, a really ghastly sort of death. And so yes. what he tried to do, and I, I think so many of us do this, is to try to sort of displace that trauma on other things or to distract oneself from the real deep trauma. And yet the very act of writing keeps pulling us back into that space. And so at the very moment he's trying to dodge his trauma, he falls into his trauma. And part of his writing is actually unearthing that at the same time, you know, he's at first, I hope, uh, a relatively unlikable character. He's snarky, he's, he's um, <laughs> condescending and all of these things. And what I hope happens, certainly what happens to me with a lot of folks is that the more you get to know them, the more you realize that people aren't just like snarky for no reason. They're not condescending for no reason. And, and so that was almost like, a, what would you call it, a foil to, to Bowie's personality. There's a, a theorist whose name is Bakhtin, and Bakhtin has this great idea. He calls it unfinalizability. And he says, you know, whenever we approach a book or whenever we approach a person, because a person is kind of a, a biological text, our first instinct is to try to categorize them, try to lock them down, try to understand them. And he says, but the problem is that like with people, people keep changing. They're, they're always changing. They're always learning more, forgetting more being exposed to traumas, let's say, to joys and so on. 
And so the only time they're really finalizable is, is when they die, but then they're not finalizable because then they enter narrative and people tell stories about them. And it's the same with books, right? The first time we read a book, we think we got this thing. And then you go back to your favorite books and you forget whole sections that you read. You, you're a different person than the person who read that book the first time, you know, all of these things. As is this notion of unfinalizability really stuck with me. Alec talks about that a little bit in the novel, this, this idea that the, no people, no books stay finalizable. And that's what, for me, is so beautiful, uh, uh, sort of about the human condition, is that idea of Heraclitian change. It's all the time. And some people read that as terrifying, and some people read it as filled with possibility. And I think Bowie, in many, at least through much of his life, felt that that was possibility. Right. And Alec is consumed with the questions that you just brought up. Like, who do you become when you become yourself? What results when unreadability is the interpretation? And those become key issues in the novel. And then another is the problem with history and the idea of pastness. Can you talk about that? There's a, a, another theorist, actually, is named Linda Hutchian. And, and she has this fancy uh, term called historiographic metafiction. But really what she's talking about is fiction that's aware of the past being complicated to tell, at best impossible to tell at worst. And what she means is just this idea that true truth recovery is an incredibly fraught space. It's because history is always only told ultimately through documents. And the people who write those documents call them biographies or call them, you know, records that you could find in town hall or whatever, are the winners in history. They're the guys that get yes. get to tell the history. Well, the problem is that there are a whole bunch of us out there who don't get to do that. And I realized as I read the Bowie biographies that they weren't biographies about Bowie at all. There were spiritual biographies about the people who wrote them. It was extraordinary how that kept coming up and how they showed their hand in a lot of, I mean, in very poignant ways, but they showed their hand about the Bowie they loved being a Bowie other than the Bowie that we might think as, you know, the real Bowie. So that idea of history and how we tell pastness, how we tell yesterday, and anybody, you know, that's cultural history. But then there's also personal history. We've all been in this situation. You know, if you have a sibling, for instance, I have two sisters, we'd sit down and try to reclaim a family moment. And oh my gosh, you know, within seconds, one of them would be telling it one way, the other, the other way. And I would think, no, 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 that really happened to me. And it'd be like, no, it happened to me. So even at the level of personal history, we're always fabricating to make sense of things, connecting the dots. That really interested me. And and again, it's, it's so central to what Bowie's all about. Like, who is that man? I I keep asking that in, in one of the final chapters, like, who is he really? And the answer is, we don't know. I love that you you threw in this little tidbit about the faux biography that William Boyd wrote in 1998 about the imaginary artist Nat Tate. And Bowie was involved with that book in some capacity. And I, I just thought, yes, that, that crystallizes what you're just saying about memory and my uneasiness with the memoir genre, because they're supposed to be factual, what really happened to the author. But like you were just saying, memory is by its very nature subjective and often inaccurate, and the lines between fact and fiction get blurred there. We share, again, the same brain. My students always fall back on their heels when I say, so you understand the memoir is just a subgenre of fiction, right? 
It pretends to be something else, and it certainly gives the illusion of being based on fact, but it's by its very nature going to be flawed. But that's like super, super appealing to me because it tells us something about the very deep roots of what narrative is really used for. So this is a a strange esoteric point, but there's proto-Indo-European root of narrative is, is this word that's spelled G-N-O that comes over into our language is K-N-O-W. So narrative is a way of knowing the world, but it's only a way of knowing the world by creating fictions about the world that seem to hang Mm -hmm. together, right? And what I wanted to do in this novel was to really, like I say, lots of different voices, lots of different perspectives to realize, to, to help us all think about the fact that it only hangs together in appearance but indeed it doesn't hang together. Now that you've said all this, I I have a really good idea of why you switched your major from journalism to English. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. I had to cover stuff like city council meetings. And I was sitting in one one day and I said, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) Dylan Thomas, this is a really funny story about the the poet Dylan Thomas, uh, actually started out as a journalist. And he had to cover fires, which was the same thing as city council. And he said, you know, you've been to one fire, you've been to them all. So he stayed, he started staying home and just like making up what the fire was about and got fired like almost the next day and became a poet instead. But it was like, oh, it's so much more fun staying at home and, and imagining my <laughs> fires. Um, does anybody really care? They're all basically the same narrative. So I did very quickly have to leave journalism behind for everybody's sanity and, and go into fiction. <laughs> <laughs> sort of the flip side of that is you can't write a novel that isn't a memoir in some deep yes. way, right? I mean, I think of the space of writing as a space of contemplation, really. You know, I mean, we can call it whatever else we want to call it, but it's my way of, you know, making sense on a certain hour, on a certain day of the world. And that's really mm-hmm. why we, I think we write, write fiction. We can write it for other reasons too, obviously. And so that super resonates with me, that I, idea of trying to write a memoir and falling into a different space that maybe even, you know, is truer than that of the memoir. Picasso said, art's the lie that tells the truth. And I think there's something like really powerful about that rather than trying to write, you know, the truth that's already um, there's, there's something really that main lines in that line for me. Sticking with style and sticking with format that this book is in, you've said that genres are a series of reading codes we've been taught to recognize, and and I, I totally agree. And you've said they allow us to have relatively predictable, comfortable relationships with text, but those that I respond to most are the ones that destabilize our reading experience in various ways, including by fusing and confusing genres or trying to work outside them altogether. And you've definitely accomplished that and always crashing in the same car. The book is a blend of fiction and biography and literary criticism, metafiction, history, all rolled into this one amazing package. And there are even parts that reminded me of William Burroughs' cut-up technique. 
And and Burroughs does indeed get a couple of shout outs in the book. So (laughs) talk to me a little bit about how the book took shape. Did you have an idea of how you wanted to present the story or did it unfold organically as you started to draft? I have to preface this by going, you ask like, the best questions. And you're such a great reader. And I just want to like, take a moment and thank you because that is so seldom the case in interviews, as I'm sure you know, and it's just such a delight to have somebody who's, who's that tuned in to what's going on. Oh, great. So I knew from the very beginning, the general sense of moving through different genres, weren't quite sure which genres they would be. Definitely wanted to move through different voices definitely wanted to play with different styles. And for all those reasons that we've been talking about, that notion of a prismatic self being told through prismatic narrative, but also this idea, and and it's behind the quote that you just used, this idea that forms suggest philosophies. And the idea of a stable form suggests some kind of philosophy that suggests a stable world and, or maybe say, say a stable identity with stable patterns. And I've been interested for many, many years in saying, is that really the way lived experience feels? And if it isn't, then like what form best or what forms best sort of echo that or or somehow meaningfully engage with that or maybe disrupt some of those. And so I, you know, I've been playing around with genres for a really long time. And, you know, I was a real science fiction buff for a while. And I wrote in science fiction and I, you know, that sort of stuff. I really felt like the first 10 years of my writing had to do with figuring out how to move out of the genres that are kind of work like straitjackets on us and how trying to move into these new possibility spaces of, of fiction just felt liberating to me. So with Bowie, it was, it was definitely going into that. I knew I wanted to write through his head. I knew I wanted to write through Alec Nolan's head. I knew I wanted to somehow get Amon in there. And Amon is a super, what would you call it, unfinalizable. Like it's impossible to read her um, and like what Bowie and she had. And that, so that was like super bad. So I wanted to do all of that, but wasn't sure how. And and so it was really fun. I don't, I don't know what wakes you up every morning and excites you about sitting down to the laptop or a piece of paper or whatever, but it, for me, it's always this problem. And it's like, what is my problem today? <laughs> and trying, trying to kind of get into that and, and then switch voices radically, which almost feels like starting a new novel every 10 pages, 20 pages. That was really interesting to me. And I took, you know, and I'm sure you do this with, you know, searching for Jimmy Page, you you take copious notes and you take all sorts of research going on, you know, do all sorts of kind of research. And then at the end of the day, you just feel like, oh my God, where do I even begin? Oh God, yes, yes. Right? And trying to like both tap that, but not let that like commandeer everything. But at the same time, you know, it's always floating in the background, but you also know, it may not be exactly accurate. So that's the, the joy of, of splashing into prose every day and going, what, what the heck am I trying to do today? <laughs> right. And then when you go back, I, I don't know if you have this feeling, but I, there's always this like loose baggy monster quality when I finish work. And I have much more fun editing back than mm-hmm. adding stuff. 
And I just love that sculpting process. So, so that's part of it. And then as I read more about Bowie, you know, you'd mentioned Burroughs and he gets a couple of shout outs and Bowie early on turned to Bo- uh, Burroughs cut up for Burroughs and Brian Geisen's cut up for some of his lyrics. And he, he, he had a joke about whenever he got to a point in his lyrics, he didn't know what to do next. He would just like start cutting stuff up and, <laughs> and see, see what came out. And then that would become his lyric. Um, uh-huh. and nobody seemed to notice. <laughs> and so, so I wanted to get a little bit of cut up in there just as, as a tribute to Bowie and some hidden illusions in there, you know, n- nod in the, or wave at a couple songs that were really meaningful to me and so on. So all of that was going on. I, I love this garbage disposal quality of writing where you just throw a whole bunch of stuff down the drain and turn it on and hope something interesting comes out. Yeah, yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit. We've been talking very positively about Bowie so far. But that's not the only side of him you write about in the novel. I really love how in exploring this person, David Bowie, you present a plethora of points of view and voices that give their opinion about him. And you include not only positive aspects of his life, but also some not so positive aspects. For example, Bowie made a lot of controversial statements about Nazis and Hitler. Granted, this is during a time when he was just out of his mind on coke, but you don't shy away from this. So what's up? Talk talk about that Hitler phase. What's up with that Hitler phase? So a lot of people know he was a coke addict that was doing so much coke. I did not know this was a possibility, doing so much coke that he began to actually bleed out his tear ducts as his wow. sinuses began to evaporate. And so to get away from that, he realized he was either going to die or he had to get away. He went to Berlin only to find out that Berlin was the heroin capital of the world. So that didn't work real well. <laughs> oh, well. Um, and, and so, so all sorts of problems there, right? Then he really was, you know, and this takes us back to that discussion of schizophrenia and so mm-hmm. on. He really was literally out of his mind at points where he would call up his wife who no longer, Angie, mm-hmm. who didn't want to, be with him anymore. So she'd like go back to London while he was in LA and he'd go, you know, there are warlocks coming up the hall and, and I put all my urine and bottles in the, in the refrigerator. Cause if they drink that, like they can take over my soul. And, and Angela go, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get on a plane and go out there. And then she'd fly out only to find out, you know, he was with some other woman in bed and it was just, it was just like crazy though. Okay. So he goes to Berlin and a lot of people don't know this, but the thin white duke is based on the Aryan ideal of this beautiful man in perfect suits with blonde hair. And so there's a whole like Nazi thing below that image. And then he got into like collecting Nazi paraphernalia, like Goebbels desk he had desk, in his yeah. apartment. Uh, that kind of thing. And then when he came back to England, you know, he, he seems to have given Nazi salute as he mm. uh, came out. He was driving Mercedes Benz that was the kind that Nazis drove. So there are all these kind of things going on. And then during interviews of that period, uh, sort of just after, late Berlin, just after, he started talking about what we need in England is a good fascist leader. He'll get everything back the way it's supposed to be. And then there's this other Bowie. And the other Bowie <laughs> is always contradicting himself and saying stuff like, well, you know, if I believe on, uh, in Nietzsche on Tuesday, I believe in Buddha on Friday. And so you never want to yep. take anything I say too seriously. And there's this other Bowie that is a provocateur. And he says things like, for instance, you know, homosexuality was, Finally, 
made legal in England only, what was I think, two years before he created Ziggy Stardust. And so clearly he's playing with all these gender bending persona at the very, you know, just right at the cusp of homosexuality suddenly being legalized. And so it's like, oh my God. So is he commenting on that or is he playing that? You know, that kind of thing. So that's a whole different level of Bowie that also is, of course, incredibly interesting, but makes him that much more, you know, the black box figure. It's like, so what is going on with that? And then later in his life, it was a whole other Bowie. You know, I I felt, and again, it it could simply be that he, he... he learned how to do it even better, or it could be that late in his life, you know, he was somewhere else. And, and so in the late nineties, early two thousands, you get this guy who's crested 50 and then cresting 60 and saying, you know, I've really learned a lot about what it is to be, you know, human Mm -hmm. and, you know, regretting things, trying to understand things, searching And my time was running wild A million dead end streets And every time I thought I got it made It seemed the taste was not so sweet So I turned myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse How the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Oh, I should tell you this um, story. It's it's in the novel, but it's such a great story. Scared to travel on trains. And I am sorry, uh, scared to fly on planes. So he traveled on trains whenever he could. And he had these two huge steamer trunks made and they were stuffed. Each steamer trunk held a couple hundred books, so 1500 books. And he was an avid reader throughout his life. Right. And so he was always interested and he had a really good sensibility about just interesting philosophy, interesting literature. Number you know, one on his list were people like Borges, people like Kafka, but also rock and roll histories, but also Eastern philosophy, all of these things. And he would just go through these. And Tony Osler, who's an artist who lived close by him in New York, said that late in his life, Bowie would go through a book a day. And so he was also this sort of autodidact. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he was always changing his view of the world. And so my sense was that late in his life, there was a different Bowie completely that emerged that, that really tried to distance himself from the, um, you know, Bowie of of the early years. But having said that, the Bowie of the early years also, you know, made a habit of sleeping, you know, with 13-year-old girls. And that's documented. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he said that he was a trisexual, meaning he would try anything once. And so <laughs> he also used sex as a kind of weapon, as a kind of, you know, what would you call it? This this sort of manipulative way of getting what he wanted by sleeping with whoever he needed to sleep with. So there's all that of Bowie. So there are moments, you know, you're, you're learning about Bowie and you're thinking, Oh my God, do I, I, this is just like disgusting. And then there are other moments you read about and you think, you know, 
he just, he crashed so many, always crashing in the same car. Ah, he, there you he go. He crashed so many times, you know, into a version of himself and then, and then tried to hopefully learn from that. And so, you know, and late in his life, he didn't smoke, he didn't drink, he didn't take drugs. He said he'd go crazy sometimes by having a cup of coffee, um, you know, and it was just, <laughs> but that's because, you know, there was a moment in his life where he had been to every imaginable party, you know, that he could ever have gone to. And it was like, you know, staying home and watching television or reading a book sounds good. So it's, it's all of those things. And like, how can you not be incredibly engaged with a persona like that? You may not want to have had him to dinner. But you definitely want to, you know, learn about him. And this is interesting that the whole Nazi bit and the baby groupies issue, which he sort of got a pass on. Now, Jimmy Page didn't. Mm -hmm. He called a lot of shit for sleeping with that very same young groupie. They had they shared the same groupie. It brings up the issue of the contemporary insistence on picking up on somebody's past controversial behavior and statements and canceling them. And all of this happened for Bowie. Before we were doing that, and when he died in 2016, he was virtually revered. Mm-hmm. And it, it does kind of make you wonder what would have happened had he been doing all that stuff in this day and age. Absolutely. And it's so interesting. It's so conflicted in terms of the media, too, and, and what the me- like who the media decides to bring down, right? Right. Yeah. It's almost like the the sort of narrative about Bowie has to do with, yeah, and this is a typical, actually, memoir narrative, right? The memoir is a deeply Christian narrative in the sense that you are in a state of innocence, you fall into sin, you struggle, you struggle, you struggle, and then there's a moment of redemption at the end, and then you become a bestseller. (laughs) And it's almost like they tried to put that narrative on Bowie. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. all of these sinning years and, and, you know, people would say, well, you know, he was a Nazi or at least a pro Nazi fascist strange thing. But, you know, he was really coked out. And it's like, yeah, I don't think that would fly today. It wasn't like one 13 year old. It was lots of 13 year olds. How do you square that? It's so hard to know even how to navigate that. And then, of course, and, you know, this, this may get me in trouble with some folks, but I also do think that there's a divide between the artist and the art. Bowie moved music forward, like whoever he was. And he was at times, I will, you know, will be the first to say, a terrible human being by most of the standards we would use. He moved music forward. He moved performance forward. He introduced millions of people around the world to experimental music through his work with people like Brian Eno. Mm-hmm. He taught us how to age with increasing dignity and increasing what would you call thoughtfulness. He helped artists all over the place. I, I admit you when you ask about my playlist, this group Arcade Fire, and if people haven't, you know. Yeah, he, he played, played with, with them. them. And the reason he played with them was he heard them one day and he said, oh, I want to help you guys. How can I help you guys. And they said, well, you know, if you got on the stage with us for like five seconds, that would really help. And he said, well, why don't we do a song together? And, you know, so he was that kind of guy too. And also both he and and Amon gave all sorts of money, right? We're, We're these incredible philanthropists for everything from gay rights to AIDS to things like landmines, uh, removal. So how do you square that? Do you have to have plus minus columns or you just go, that's amazing. (laughs) Plus his music is amazing. 
Plus, you know, he flopped as a musician during the 90s. He also, you know, his overnight success took about 10 years at the beginning of his career. And so he flopped when he went to Tin Machine. And in the 90s, people just tuned him out. I certainly did. And then he just kept going because he said, it's no longer about me gaining an audience like it was with the, the whole dance phase that he went through where he was doing kind of disco-ish sort of stuff. But, but rather it was like, oh, no, this is just stuff for me. And, and all of a sudden in the early 2000s, it synced up with a whole bunch of other people out in the world like, like us. That is what excites me about talking about all this. But, but the art, I mean, there are so many horrible artists uh, throughout history. And if, if we're going to chuck them out because of that, uh, I think, you know, we're going to have like three haiku poems left to read. <laughs> <laughs> My name's David Bowie. This is David Bowie singing Golden Years. I'll be David Bowie. Oh, I'm David Bowie. I live down the road. Oh. Is this the real David Bowie? <laughs> the world is going to die, says David Bowie. You mentioned books earlier, so let's talk about that and the role books and reading play in the story. For instance, Bowie is rereading John Cage's 1961 book, Silence, Lectures and Writings, in several sections. He says he knows he, this is interesting, he says he knows he first read it in the 70s because he once read a biography about himself reading the book. And that in and of itself is fascinating, the idea of his reading all the biographies about himself. Mm -hmm. But then you write in the novel, quote, what books actually are all about at the end of the day, memories fiasco. How do you see the Cage book and the other books that make Bowie's list of favorite books and the act of reading itself functioning and always crashing in the same car? In another way, from sort of another perspective, in my mind, what I do is I go, as I begin a novel, I always ask myself, sort of, what is the central metaphor of that novel going to be? And then I try to drill down into that metaphor as, as deep as I can go. And one of the real key metaphors for me in this novel was how we read others and how we're read mm-hmm. by others. And that this novel at a whole different level than we've been talking about it is really a book about how we read and why we read and what reading is. And reading being a kind of mode of writing and writing being a kind of mode of reading. And so for Bowie, he seemed to like get that at some really deep level. Like he wanted to be read in certain ways. It didn't necessarily have to jibe with how he read himself. And also he read voluminously, as we were just talking about. And I think that really taught him about how reading is an act of continuous self-examination, right? So that idea of reading the same book at different times in your life, and we've all done this, this idea of reading a book and having forgotten we've read it and, you know, or seen a film and having forgotten we've seen it until we begin to see it again, that kind of thing. And so reading has always been sort of a, what would you call it, a philosophical problem for me. 
from very early on. I mean, it's the strangest thing, you know, whether you're in, you know, academia or out of academia, picking up a book and they're just these little squiggles, they're just these little black squiggles on a page. And yet somehow, like we fall into those and it complicates immeasurably. You go into a classroom after reading a book and you want to talk to the students and it slowly dawns on me, we've all read different books by the same title, right? It, it, yes. Everybody's mm-hmm. read a different corner. Everybody's remembered something differently. Yep. Everybody has a different take on it. And that's the super fiery moment of, of the reading experience is going, oh, that, that, you know, this goes back to Bakhtin and unfinalizability. That text is so unfinalizable. And our lives are so unfinalizable. I love that idea. So reading John Cage and not remembering that he's read John Cage. And also, you know, he comments uh, just a little farther on about how, you know, all the cells in his body's uh, in his body has changed, have changed so many times that he's not even like physically the same person who read it, let alone emotionally, is a profound idea to me. It, it really, really is. You mentioned very briefly the subtitle of the novel, Always Crashing in the Same Car, a novel after David Bowie. And you, you talked a little bit about that. I'm flashing on your 2007 novel, Anxious Pleasures, mm-hmm. a novel after Kafka. <laughs> yeah. and, and here's how Amazon describes that as not only representing a collaboration with a ghost, but two, a celebration, augmentation, complication, and devoted unwriting of a momentously influential text, that being Kafka's The Metamorphosis. This description reminds me of what's going on in Always Crashing in the Same Car. You're collaborating with the ghost of David Bowie in creating this text, and also dealing with his life as a text to be read and in a sense deconstructed. I can't help but wonder... Does that connection between the two novels have anything to do with why they have similar subtitles? Absolutely. So this is another reason I write at the most profound level, um, at the deepest level, and that is to thank other works and other people that have had a profound effect on me, right? I bet in many ways it's like Jimmy Page, you know, for you when you were entering that space. It's this whole other level. It's like Bowie has been part, not only part of the soundtrack, but a major part of the soundtrack of my life. Kafka is why I actually started to read seriously. I I had this teacher in 11th grade. Her name was Mrs. Garvin, Joyce Garvin. And she saw that I was a terrible student. I was a D minus student. And I was the guy, that really annoying student who sat in the back of the room looking out the window and uh, (laughs) waiting for the class, you know, enduring the minutes until the class was over. And for whatever reason, it was so interesting. She one day said, I see that you're not interested in the class that much. Can I give you a book? And you just read it if you want to, you know, and and if you like it, let's get together and talk. And the book was The Metamorphosis. And like, I still have, you know, memorized, you know, when Gregor Sanzo woke one uh, morning from Uneasy Dreams, he found he'd been transformed in his bed into a giant cockroach. And it's like, yeah, you got me. <laughs> and, and of course, it's this metaphor for the guy who sits in the back of the room, isolated from the other people in the room and so on and so on. And that book got me into learning German. It got me into becoming an increasingly passionate reader. And it ultimately got me into literature as I was sitting in that you know, city council meeting thinking, I can't do this anymore, or I'm going to like, you know, stab myself. <laughs> with knitting needles, uh, it was like, oh, I'd rather write like Kafka. So it, it's very important to me to engage with 
imaginations, you know, minds that work in different ways. And then also artists that are always a little out of step with their time. Kafka completely out of step, right? He's the guy who, who asked on his deathbed to have everything burned. And it was like, that's it. And Bowie out of step from kind of the 80s on with his culture. And he was just somewhere else doing other things for other reasons. And I think both of those like resonated with who I wanted to be as, as a sort of model of writing. So I just wanted to thank them by writing books about them. I'm taking a dark turn here, but I find it really interesting that a lot of your work has to do with death. Your novel Nietzsche's Kisses is about someone entering the final stage of his life and confronting his mortality. That's what's going on with David Bowie and always crashing in the same car. His cancer diagnosis and looming death just haunt the book. And I so admire his insistence on turning his death into a work of art in the making of the Black Star album. You do an incredible job of detailing this process, both the process of dying and of making art right up until the end. Oh, thank you. And I, 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 I'm reminded, you know, Faulkner in an interview was asked once how he came up with the idea of writing as he lay dying. And he just said, oh, I, I, I just imagined the absolute worst things that could happen to people and let mm. them happen. And I think with Alec, that's very much the case where it's like, what is the absolute worst thing that could ever, ever happen to me in the world? It's not me dying. It's my wife dying, right? It's, it's that moment of the person you've been closest to for the longest period of time succumbing in, in, you know, horrible sorts of ways. And then I actually had a, a colleague in the philosophy department whose husband became paraplegic. And I don't want to give away too much of the book, but at the same time, you know, like the wife of my book who was put on a ventilator and at one point asked for the ventilator to be removed and then changed his mind as he began to die. And this, just trying to imagine that space and what that would feel like from the inside out is enough to wake me up in the morning and make me fearful and excited about writing. going to go to a lighter space for this next bit. I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. Mm. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. Okay. All right. The first one is David Bowie personas in no particular order. Ziggy Stardust, Major Tom, The Blind Prophet from the Black Star Videos, or The Thin White Duke. Boy, given our conversation just now, you you really give those uplifting conversations, don't you? I would have to go with the blind <laughs> prophet. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, okay. All right. Bowie songs mentioned in your book, Black Star, Ziggy Stardust, Let's Dance, Heroes, Changes. Oh, I think for kind of more personal reasons, it would be heroes. I, I was uh, lucky enough to go to... Berlin on a couple fellowships and lived there for a year and a half and, and, you know, partially tracked down the Bowie. 
but also see what had happened to Berlin and so on. And Bowie actually did recording a, a sort of live concert and then a recording of him singing Heroes long before the oh. wall came down on the other side of the wall, on, on the western side of the wall. And that is magnificent. You know, that, that was being Heroes. Um, so that was awesome. Yeah, I would have picked Heroes too, because it's just, I love all those songs, but that song in particular is is so powerful. It is, and it's so many levels, right? And it's just a great piece of, of music too. It has mm-hmm. so many layers to it. Okay, quotes from Bowie mentioned in your <laughs> book. <laughs> I, you may have already said this one. I change my mind a lot. I usually don't agree with what I say very much. Or... It's only when you start to move slightly out of your depth and you feel you're a little bit lost, that's when you're going to get something exciting going. It'll either be a dismal failure or it will be spectacularly what you really want to do. Number three, I like this one. Rock is only a conveyor of information now. It's not a conveyor of rebellion. Last one, confront a corpse at least (laughs) once. The unmitigated absence of life is the most disturbing and challenging confrontation you will ever have. Right. And he could only have said that last line after he had turned 50, right? Yeah. But I'm going to go with number two, just because when I heard him say that, that, he said that on Charlie Rose. And when I heard him say that, I thought, oh my God, he's like describing my experience of writing. I was thinking of you. Absolutely. (laughs) And everything that we just said about getting up in the morning and what drives you and contemplation, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, putting yourself deliberately in a, in a position of, you know, discomfort, which is discovery. So I'm going to go with that, but those are, I, I would like to pick all of the above, but I will go with number two. All right. Here's another category. Drinks mentioned in your book. (laughs) Gin martinis. Espresso, Glen Livet, which I had never heard of, which mm. is single malt, single malt scotch. Oh well, I'm I'm like utterly a single malt scotch guy, um, okay. but I'm also utterly an espresso guy. So so like I measure out literally, I measure out my day on espressos. Um, but when I'm <laughs> teaching, it's like not one o'clock. It's like espresso too. <laughs> but but then, like when I'm listening to good music. It has to be a Glenlivet, which is so scotches range from like very light and airy to very heavy. Like you almost need to drink them with a fork. And and Glenlivet is the light and airy, and it goes with jazz. It goes with like the B sides of the oh. the Berlin albums. So you must try this drink listening to your favorite music. Okay, I don't like scotch, but I will mm-hmm. try this. It's a, it's a, it's an acquired taste. It's totally an acquired taste. But oh my god, once you acquire it, it's so good. Okay, I will give it a try. And you know, actually, I would have been able to come up with a lot more choices in this category had it been drugs consumed in the novel. <laughs> but you know, I figured you didn't want to incriminate yourself on the podcast. <laughs> right. All right, last category. Think real hard about this. It's important. Mm. Best rock guitarist. Oh gosh. Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page or Jimmy Page. Okay, let me think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to go with number one, two, and three. Yeah. Oh right. <laughs> That's there good. you go. So do, so do you have any people who aren't Jimmy Page that you also hold up there? 
I thought you were going to ask me, have I had people on the show who hate Jimmy Page? And I have. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, no, absolutely not that. But no, I'm trying to think of, I mean, Jimmy Page is so great. Jimi Hendrix is so great, right? Oh, um, God, yeah. You know, and I, there, there are a couple of people like that. I do like many other guitarists besides just Jimmy Page. And we lost one recently in Jeff Beck. Right. That's another one. We, yeah. You hear it and you just go, oh, oh, okay. This this like, that's special. That's mm-hmm. special. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, your dad was in the oil business and you and your mm-hmm. family spent the early years of your life in the jungle compound around Lake Maracaibo in Venezuela. One of your first memories involves your mom and a big ass snake. You want to tell me that story? <laughs> oh, happily. It's, it's one of my <laughs> earliest traumas. So, so you got to imagine, like I was at the age where you're just kind of coming to consciousness. Like you're going, where am I? What is happening here? We lived in a jungle. We definitely did. We lived in a jungle compound that's surrounded by very tall fence to keep all the really vicious animals like wild boars. <laughs> like my sister literally got caught on the wrong side of the fence by a wild boar and had to climb up the fence. So anyway, I had this like super vivid memory of this poisonous snake had, they got into the house all the time. Snakes. Um, uh. Uh, it was, it was, and I have this like soup for obvious reasons I'm about to share fear of snakes, but also like all sorts of other little poisonous things. It went into the laundry pile, got wrapped up in a sheet and you know how snakes kind of curl up there. My mom, without thinking through the whole laundry pile into the wash and bleached it out and then, you know, washed it and, and pulled it out. And this huge snake. And I just remember sitting on the floor going, yeah, this is my childhood. This huge snake (laughs) fell out of the wash and it had, as it was dying, had (sighs) struck against the sheet. So so there were stains of poison on the sheet. So when I went back to this little town outside of New York called River Edge in Northern Jersey, we had show and tell every week um, on Fridays. And I would like literally go in and tell this story and they would go, Go to the principal again, Olson. And I would go down there and I would go, would you please call my mom? This like really happened. And they would call and it really happened. And I I remember my mother very early on going, you know, you need to be a fiction writer and put all this down. Well, there you go. And and there you go. That is the greatest story. (laughs) And my theory is your preoccupation with death and your fiction all stems from that disturbing memory. You know, it was probably my earliest one. So I I don't think you're you're very far from that. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's ghastly, right? And you can't get that out. Uh Like, to this day, like, this is really true. You know, and I'm 187 years old, I will wake (laughs) up in the middle of the night with snakes in the bedrooms. And one of the things we had to do in Venezuela all the time before we went to sleep, we had to roll down the covers and make sure there was nothing in there sharing the space. And we oh, had to God. look in our pillows. So yeah, trauma. <laughs> that gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm glad you survived. Me too. We are at the end here. So what have you got going on now that you want to tell listeners about? Oh, man. Well, thank you so much. This was such a blast. What I have going on right now is getting the word out about Always Crashing, and I'm working on a new novel. I'm one of those people who has to be writing every morning, whether or not it's going anywhere or not. And so I'm in those, Philip Roth once said, you know, when you're starting out with a novel uh, for the first 50 pages, you can't do anything right. And, And then when you get to the end of the novel for the last 50 pages, you can't do anything wrong. I am definitely in the first 50 pages 
um, of <laughs> going, I don't know what I'm doing. And that's where I am right now. But in part, it, it has to do with um, Jackson Pollock, actually, another artist who, in a painterly way, I'm fascinated with because he was so, such a conflicted personality. So yes. I'm doing a whole bunch of reading about him. And what most people don't know is, so he died when his, he ran his car when he was just drunker than drunk into a tree. Mm-hmm. What people don't know is he had his sort of girlfriend with whom he was having an affair while his yep. wife was in Europe. She survived, but there was a woman in the back seat. She died. Who died. And that woman's name was Edie. Edie, this is just so, I love it. Like you could never invent this. Edie was Jewish, grew up in Germany during the rise of the Nazis during the 30s. Went, her parents, who were very left-leaning sort of intellectuals, took her to a book burning so that they could show her what the world sort of was becoming around them. And at the book burning, Goering walked by and thought she was such a cute arrogant because she had blonde hair. He picked her up to kiss her on the cheek and she turned and bit Goering's lower lip so hard that it bled. Oh, wow. And she was allowed to survive because this was the late 30s when the Jews had begun to be rounded up. So the first part of the novel is actually about that moment. And then the second part of the novel is about how nonetheless in her 20s, she ended up in the backseat of the wrong car at the wrong time. Fascinating. Isn't that something? All right, Lance. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Pick up a copy of Always Crashing in the Same Car, a novel after David Bowie and Lance's gazillion other books at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. Where can folks go to find out more about you? Are you on social media? I am, you know, um, Facebook. You can always find me on Facebook. And, okay. and then, you know, websites floating around and interviews floating around. Okay, I'll put links in the show notes for that. So thanks again, Lance. This has been a pleasure. Oh, and thank you so much. And thank you so much for caring about you know, writing, caring about rock and roll and caring about reading. And I do. (laughs) All right. Well, you take care. You too. We'll take one last short break. Then Nick DiMatteo joins me to do a deep dive into Bowie's Berlin years. This is Nick DiMatteo, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. We're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm excited to welcome Nick DiMatteo to the show. Nick is a singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, music producer, and sound editor. His band, Wreck, has released over a dozen albums, and he's written and produced music for several films and shows. Nick is also a podcast producer, currently in the fifth season of his show, Music is Not a Genre, on YouTube and all the major streaming services. You can hear Nick's voiceover work in several commercials and web spots and see his acting in films such as The Many Saints of Newark. 
You can stream rec music anywhere and find out more about everything at nickdematteo.com. Nick has three amazing kids and lives in New York City. Thanks for coming on the show, Nick. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the focus of this episode is Lance Olson's fabulous new novel, Always Crashing in the Same Car, a novel after David Bowie. And it's a story that fictionalizes the life of David Bowie from several different perspectives. The novel is framed around Bowie's last days and the making of his final album, Black Star, but his Berlin period comes up a lot too. And that's a period that I don't know a whole lot about, but I'm intrigued by. So I figured it would be a good idea to get some schooling on those years. But first, give me some context. What did Bowie's career look like right before he went to Germany? This is a real interesting period in Bowie's life because he had, up until that point, pretty much gone nonstop since the early mid-60s when he was in a band and, and had been doing some recording here and there and then finally had a few breaks and ended up you know, making it big in the early mid-70s, at which point he was going kind of nonstop. He was in the movie The Man Who Fell to Earth right when he was recording Station to Station and was in LA and was heavily into nightlife and cocaine and all of that. And yet through it all, the music was always the most important thing to him. And he knew that if he didn't get away from all that, things would come crashing down. Ironically, you know, he said when he did The Man Who Fell to Earth, he really, he he didn't need to act because he was in the state that the character was in in the film. He was also great friends with uh, Iggy Pop, who felt the exact same way. He was having some major drug issues as well, knew he needed to unplug. So they moved to France in 77 and knew, you know, as with Bowie in every period of his career, he wanted to go in a different direction. It wouldn't be more longer than an album or two before he decided, okay, I need to shift this. Uh, you know, yeah. ever curious, restless soul which was what made his music so wonderful. And that was in part why he left. You know, it wasn't just for his health. He knew he needed to create a new direction for his music. And he was really into what we call krautrock. So, you know, bands like uh, Noi uh, or even a band like Tangerine Dream, the kind of electro rock that was popping up at the time that was somewhat experimental, craft work even. They were big at that point. Yeah, that's right. They were huge. And we know now how influential they were and how a lot of what they did didn't really take hold until really the 80s, you know, late 70s, but but mainly the 80s. A lot, and that can be said for what Bowie was doing in the in the Berlin trilogy, in that he jumped off from what these other bands were doing that really America didn't know much of anything about. And decided, well, he needed to go where the action was. So he first retreated, you know, to France and started recording there, the, the album Low, the first album in the trilogy. But then realized he needed to go to the center of it all, which for that kind of music was Berlin, uh, Hansa Studios. So at some point during the recording of Low, he, sw- he switched over to recording the rest of it in Berlin. Okay, let's talk about Berlin in the 70s, because we're, we're, we're talking about West Berlin, because obviously the wall didn't come down until 1989. The musical influences 
from that place were really what drove him there or what inspired him to go there? Yeah, well, well, because he, you know, he was fine with the retreat and where he was recording, you know, in in France, but was pulled to Berlin because of the spirit of the music and the scene that was happening there. He was in a place himself that had that kind of, if you want to go towards a metaphor, that kind of same like inner tension and, and, you know, walls built up inside of him that Berlin was doing, you know, in, in real time throughout the entire city. And the, where they recorded in Hansa, there were remnants of the Third Reich. And, and so even in West Berlin, you still had these echoes of the oppression that was once there. It's interesting to me that he chose Berlin. Berlin was basically the heroin capital at the time. It was a really druggy, kind of decadent place. And here's Bowie trying to go and clean up from drugs, and he's going to this place where there's a lot of that going on. That's, you know, that that is super interesting. And it shows you how single-minded he was, that even in the midst of his uh, cocaine addiction – and in trying to reboot his career in a way that was more satisfying to him and branching out and working with somebody like Iggy Pop and producing his album and and on trying to help Iggy Pop clean up as well, he never lost sight of his objectives. You know, in the midst of his, you know, low is the name of the album. It was probably his lowest low up until towards the end mm. of his life. And, and even, I think, more so than that. And still was able to focus to the point where he worked with the same musicians he worked on Station to Station. He worked with the you know Tony Visconti again as a producer, but knew yeah. that he needed to bring in somebody new, which would at that time have been Brian Eno. He never lost sight of his objectives, even in the midst of that. What were Brian Eno's contributions to the trilogy? Well, you know, Brian Eno is one of these uh, journeymen producers in a sense. He, he he doesn't even like to call himself a producer, but he has this sort of existential input towards what's happening in the studio as well as his creation, really. There were there was music like this before he he named it and created it, but ambient music was was really mm. solidified by the work that Brian Eno did in the 70s. And Bowie knew that, and Bowie was a big fan of his work and wanted some of that, you know, kind of somewhat cold, stark, uh, dreamy ambience that had a lot of, you know, techno and electronic sounds to it, uh, mixed with organic sounds as part of the production of specific, even more so low and heroes than Lodger, but really throughout the whole trilogy. Let's talk about the trilogy. Low came out in 76. 77. Yeah. Was it 77 and Heroes 77 no, as well? It was it was recorded in 77 but it came out in 78. 
wasn't Heroes the only one of the three that was recorded entirely in Berlin? Yeah, that's right. And and I think that's significant because Low to me was him kind of dropping away from everything he had done before and saying, I need a fresh start. I don't know what I'm doing with it yet, but I'm going to do something. And he had, you know, his his regular people there as well as Brian Eno really helping and guiding that. But more, it was mostly exploration more than anything else. Heroes was the kind of the culmination of what he wanted to achieve in this new sound. It was, it had everything that he was working on doing in low, but to the fullest degree, which is, I think, significant in that it was the only one recorded fully in Hansa Studios. You know, and then when you go to Lodger, part of it there, part of it in, you know, Switzerland, and then even a little bit in New York, you can hear him already coming out of the sound that he was doing, still hugely influenced by those first two albums of the trilogy, but starting to sort of resurface from having, you know, swum in the deep, let's say. What are we getting a taste of in Lodger that would sort of indicate what direction he was going to go after uh, that? I love that question. When you think of Low and Heroes, you see that the first side of each album were songs, words, you know, pretty, they were fairly structured. And the second side of each album was where they really did all their experimentation. And that to me is Bowie was at his first peak at, right before then and knew that he had the freedom despite any pressures from the industry and fans to do whatever he wanted and gave himself that freedom to explore to the fullest on the, on all the albums, but especially on the second side of each of those first two albums. But on Lodger, that's not structured that way. There's something more cohesive about each song, or at least more traditional or structured about each song. And yet it still has a tremendous amount of the, the sonic palette and the drum beat, the, the certain way the drums were produced and the keyboard sounds, the synth sounds, things that wouldn't become prominent until after that and in the 80s especially mm -hmm. were throughout. And yet the songs themselves were more uh, traditionally structured as if he was saying, well, I've done my soul searching and my searching on the inside. I'd like to come out now and try to connect this to the rest of the world. Well, if he's doing all this experimentation, starting with low. What in the world did his record label think when they first heard that album? Uh, they didn't want to release it. They weren't very happy. They, they, didn't hear, <laughs> they didn't hear a single. And ironically, the single that we know from Heroes wasn't really a single at the time. You know, it didn't become popular until much later. They knew that event, you know, eventually they would have to do whatever he sent. And they found a way to do it. And... They found a way to kind of mix it in with the releases of the two Iggy Pop albums that he produced and, and kind of give it that kind of momentum. But it wasn't really until Scary Monsters and Super Creeps that he had another hit. Everybody knows the song Heroes. I was looking at Low and Lodger, and I don't, I'm not really familiar with any of the tracks on either. I mean, I, I actually, well, I do like Sound and Vision from Low. But I'm not really familiar with any of the other tracks. Were there tracks on those albums that that did make a splash when they came out? No, not no. In in fact, there were actually critics. The critics were divided. There were critics who understood what he was going for and said, "Oh, this is groundbreaking," and he's going into new territory. And others were like, "Well, you lost us. We don't really know what you're doing here, and 
uh, we can't find anything to kind of hook on to. Well, did they sell? How, how did they do commercially? They did fine commercially. Uh, and of course, in, in hindsight and re- retrospectively, they have sold tremendously well and, and are considered the peak of his career by many people, but they didn't do very well. They did not, you know, I don't have exact numbers, but they did not come anywhere near the, the chart dominance of young Americans and station to station. They certainly, they didn't, and even Scary Monsters and Super Creeps was a return, not just to kind of the coherence as far as the listener was concerned, because it had more pop material, but also the charts, which he was sort of hot and cold about charts. There were times in his career where he really said, you know what, it's time for me to make some hits and I'm going to do that. And he did it. And there were other times where he was like, I don't want any part of that at all. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. He knew after the trilogy, it's not even that he was itching to make a hit in some superficial way. He wanted to change direction. And his next challenge for him, for that album, and then of course, Let's Dance, was it's time for me to be a superstar again. How do you think the Berlin trilogy stacks up against the rest of the Bowie catalog? Here we are in 2023, looking back at his career in totality. How do you see that stacking up against what the other stuff that he did? I, I think that people judge careers in, in, on several different levels, and we often tend to judge it based on popularity. And we know that they weren't very popular at the time. If you're judging them artistically, you can say, and judging his career artistically, you can say that he had several peaks, as do any long term artists, and that too many critics. They, I've, I've read often that they say his last classic album was Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, which to me was the statement of, here's what I learned in Berlin. I'm going to put it into action in a way that everybody can understand and had the big hits mm. and everything. But critics will still say that the trilogy itself was were probably the strongest and most influential albums that he ever did. And to me, my opinion is, as far as influence goes, you probably can't get any higher than the Berlin Trilogy when it comes to both. Wow. Because the things he was doing we take for granted now, almost no other artists were doing them, and certainly no one of his stature. And then all of a sudden, you had you had uh, bands like Joy Division and, and all of the new wave, new romantic, post-punk bands, and, and Gary Newman. He actually had a little tiff with Gary Newman because he thought Gary Newman created his whole persona based on what Bowie did and his whole look and sound and all of that. But these things that he was doing, 77 through 79, basically became that kind of alternative sound through the entire first half of the 80s. I do, on a, on a personal level, find other albums of his to, to be standalone stronger. If you're talking about sheer, like I said, influence, this is this is the peak. Do you have a favorite of the three? Yeah, yeah. It's you know I, I re-listened to all three of them, and the more you listen to Low and Heroes, the more you get, and you have they they bear they don't just bear repeated listening; they dem- they demand repeated listening. Lodger does too, but it's one that you can understand right away. And there was a branching out from that kind of German techno sound and 
Krautrock into, uh, you know, African and world global influences. And I lean more towards an influence of being eclectic and experimental within a song that is kind of cohesive. And that to me describes all of Lodger. That's pretty much what that album was. So I, and I think that everything he was working on and experimenting with that he learned through there, he put to, he put to the most concise and greatest use on uh, Lodger. Even though most people would say low was the strongest. And I think because it came out of the gate as such a, sh- a shocking change. Well, I now know a whole lot more about the Berlin Trilogy than I did before, so thank you very much. I'm definitely going to give it another listen. Before you leave, tell us about your podcast, Music is Not a Genre. Oh, well, thank you for asking. So uh, I started a blog in 2016 that was a companion to a series of recordings that I was doing for a new album called Music is Not a Genre, and I ended up not using that title. I used the title The Weird Objective instead. and knew that that was good for something. So in 2019, I started Music is Not a Genre as a both a video and audio podcast. And you can see it on YouTube and it's streaming, you know, audio-wise everywhere. And so what I do is I choose a music topic. It could be an entire uh, artist's career. It could be a single album. It could be a type of music. Or it could be a musical idea or opinion or thought. And I connect it I, 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 I unravel it and then I connect it to other kinds of music, other artists in ways that you might find unexpected. And I also connect it to elements of the culture and society and politics and, and all of that. And I, and I kind of try to make the point that not only is any specific type of music not a genre in the sense that you call something rock or ambient rock or you know punk rock and the more the the more you dig the more you realize that there are a lot of holes in the walls of that genre that that send connections out to other genres to the point where you realize all of it's connected and it's just labels we put on things but that also music itself cannot be separated as a thing from the rest of the world it's too it it's too uh, vital and important both as a reflection of the world and as a way to exist and experience life. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining me, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Check out Nick's website at nickdematio.com and tune into his podcast, Music is Not a Genre, on YouTube and all the major streaming services. Don't forget to pick up a copy of Lance Olson's novel, Always Crashing in the Same Car, a novel after David Bowie, at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word.
And check out the Rock is Lit Vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.